Amen. Why would we do a study through the book of Numbers? A few reasons are worth reflecting on. Number one, it is the next book in our journey through the first five books known as the Torah or the Law of Moses. In other words, it is fitting that we turn to Numbers because we've gone through all of Genesis together, all of Exodus together, and all of Leviticus together. What am I going to do? Skip Numbers? No, I'm not going to skip Numbers. We're right there looking at it. And we have uh, we finished the book of Leviticus in 2020. That feels like a long time ago. So it's past time. We are, we are due to look at this fourth book. Uh, secondly, the book of Numbers has a reputation. A reputation that needs to change. One writer says, Who but a mathematician could rise with joy to a book called Numbers? And yet, I think that the reputation of Numbers, sometimes with its uh, perplexing and odd content, um, leads to an unfair analysis of its epic and multifaceted content that I think is a thrilling ride for the reader, and I hope we'll see that to be true. Thirdly, the Old Testament uses the book of Numbers. And yes, I said the Old Testament. Later on in the Psalms and in the Prophets, the book of Numbers has content featured in later biblical authors in the Old Testament. Not just there. In this third point, not only does the Old Testament use Numbers, the New Testament uses the book of Numbers. Paul does. The writer of Hebrews does. When we look at the content of this book, it will not surprise us how impactful it was to the later authors. So Old and New Testament authors use this book a lot. Number four, the variety of genres in this book is stunning. Well, there are hosts of names. There is failure and unfaithfulness. There is idolatry and immorality. There is warfare and there is division. There is the covenantal faithfulness of God and mercy of God. This book contains all manner of the kinds of stories in these 36 chapters. So fourthly here, the variety of genres in the book is stunning, and I think a great journey to walk through. Number five, and lastly, all Scripture is profitable and useful. And our brother Caleb was sharing this at our men's prayer breakfast yesterday from 2 Timothy 3. And um, I want to apply it to numbers tonight because in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This allows us to ask a question, how is it then, given what we know of all Scripture, that numbers in particular is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness? How will numbers help us? We want to ask those kinds of questions. Let's set the scene In Genesis, God promised to bless all the families of the earth through the family of Abraham. And Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob was renamed Israel. And when you see those patriarchs leading to a nation, these descendants of Jacob are called the Israelites. The Old Testament tells their story. It tells of the story of the rise of these Israelites from a small family in the early part of Genesis. And that God's promise in raising up this nation is that through this nation would come the Deliverer. We're on the lookout for that one with our hand to our brow, looking in the future from Genesis forward, when will the Deliverer come? These Israelites are divided according to Jacob's 12 sons, which become the heads of tribes. 
We, uh, we will often hear people in our church refer to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so what we mean by that are the 12 sons of Jacob for which those tribes are named. At the end of Genesis, all the Israelites are in Egypt, and that's where Exodus begins. It picks up with a people who have been promised land, but they're not in that land. They actually, in Exodus, we see them opening in a story of captivity. And generation after generation that went by, they became subjected ruled over by ruthless Pharaoh, and their very line of progeny and descent was threatened by someone who was murderous and intent on preventing the multiplication of the people outside the land. But those opening chapters of Exodus tell of God's faithfulness. He remembered His covenant with them. He would show His faithfulness, and He released them from captivity through signs and wonders, plagues. The mighty exodus occurred by his power, crushing Pharaoh's opposition, and the Israelites leave Egypt to head for the promised land. But there is a place they stop. And they stop for a good stint of time. In Exodus 19, they arrive at Mount Sinai. While most of the book of Exodus is not in Egypt, um, we can locate the majority of the book at one spot. The book of Exodus, in the majority, takes place at a mountainous place called Sinai, a wilderness area. It's there that the Israelites receive commands from God. Not just the Ten Commandments, though that is probably the most famous of the instructions given from Exodus 20. You shall, and you shall, and you shall not, and all of the rest. They They learn and receive from God who gives them instructions on how to love Him, how to love neighbor, They hear about ceremonial laws, rituals, civil instructions, offerings. Exodus is full of that, including instructions to build a house. It might seem odd since they're not in the promised land. Why does God want them to build a house? It's a portable tent called the tabernacle. And the book of Leviticus tells us how the nation was to live holy before the Lord around this place. Offerings and sacrifices that were to be brought to it. The priesthood that was to maintain it. And then the holy life of the people of God when they traveled. The tent, the tabernacle, needed to be portable. The portable nature of the tabernacle meant we can carry it with us as we travel. And so they are going to go to the promised land with this as a holy people to live in a holy uh, way before the Canaanites who don't know God. The book of Numbers is where they leave Sinai. What I have on the board behind me here is this reference on the right of a span of chapters, Exodus 19 to Numbers 10. This all takes place in one spot, in the region of Sinai. That's a lot of Bible chapters, isn't it? From Exodus 19 to 40, all of Leviticus, the first 10 chapters of Numbers. That's 59 chapters. 59 chapters at one spot. This is a book of journeying starting in chapter 10. But prior to that, they're all chapters unfolding at one location where they are learning what it is to know God and dwell with God and live before Him in a holy way. Numbers begins a transition. It begins a transition where the Israelites leave this place with their portable tent to go to the land of promise. But things will not go the way they hoped it would go starting out. Starting out, things were well. The opening chapters of Numbers give instructions about how God was going to gather His people, order them very precisely, and lead them. 
The farther you get into the book of Numbers, the more disheartened you become. It it becomes clear that this people is a disobedient people that God is leading. At least in mass, there are a lot of disobedient people among the older generation. And later in Numbers, they will undergo a judgment of God that will delay, from their perspective, the entrance to the promised land. When they leave Sinai in Numbers 10, it's to go straight there. But almost 40 years will pass before they enter the promised land. Numbers is a, is a story of God's faithfulness despite the unfaithfulness of the people he is shepherding. And Numbers chapter 1 introduces us to a situation where, all right, these people are going to leave Sinai. They're going to go into the promised land, but the promised land is occupied. And it's occupied by people who are going to embattle the Israelites And they're going to not just relinquish the promised land without some kind of fight. The Israelites are going to see the faithfulness of God and the power of God in the promised land. And they're going to have to undergo skirmishes and battles that the book of Joshua tells us about. Numbers 1 is preparing people with that mindset. We're going to go into the promised land and we're going to have warfare. But who's going to do the fighting for us? In Numbers, some names and numbers are going to be given, and they're going to prepare the people for a military incursion in the land. Now, Numbers is given its name in the English, the word numbers, because primarily there are two censuses. Now, a census, of course, is gathering together an amount of something, an amount of people and a population, and here in Numbers 1, there's a census. The question is, how many people are we going to have to gather to fight for us? Some specific criteria are given. But there is a second census in Numbers. It's in chapter 26, and a good question for the reader to ask is, why are there two? Why is it that we open the book getting a number of people who are going to fight, and then later on, God has to have another census in Numbers 26? And the answer to why there are two censuses is because the generation that was numbered is going to die over 40 years in the wilderness. And there will rise up among the children and, uh, and younger adults a group who will become of age and in that second census be the people to enter the land. In other words, the people who are counted in Numbers 1 are not entering the land after this book ends. It will require... A death and resurrection of Israel. One way to think of the book of Numbers is a death and resurrection of Israel during the wilderness years. A dying of many bodies in the land. And a rising of others. So that the Israel that comes out of the wilderness is different from the Israel that went into the wilderness. And the book of Numbers explains why. Now in verses 1 through 3, there is a command to count. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. That's a a lot of specific information. What do we need to glean from that? First of all, this is the God who reveals himself to people. He has been guiding the Israelites and he's going to speak to them and give them guidance on what's next. But where they are is also given. Who, the, who is speaking is God, to whom it's Moses, and where it's in the wilderness of Sinai. 
They're present from Exodus 19 through Numbers chapter 10 in this spot. The tent of meeting is mentioned. What is that? Well, under this uh, reference to scriptures, I have this, uh, this drawn image of the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And there are eastern entrances into the dashed courtyard and into the large room called the holy place. And then left west of it, the most holy place, the tabernacle was the portable tent. That's the tent of meeting. Why is it called meeting? This is the place where Moses would go to commune with God. This is the place where God would meet. So the tent of meeting is quite appropriate. It's called a tabernacle because it's portable. It can be taken down and and put back up. It's a tent of meeting. It's also called the tabernacle of the testimony later on. And that's because in that smallest room, the most holy place, there was an Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments were kept. It was God's testimony of his will, of what it would look like most concisely to love God and to love neighbor. So it was called the tabernacle of the testimony because God had made known by his own witness and words what he said of his, for his people. It's in this place and in a certain time on the first day of the second month in the second year after they've come out of Egypt. So it's been more than a year since they've left Egypt, but less than a year at Sinai. Here's an estimate. Exodus 19 to Numbers 10 covers about 11 months. 11 months. And just to give you some perspective, Genesis 1 through 11 covers thousands of years. Okay, so in other words, when you're looking at the opening chapters and even in through the rest of Genesis and into Exodus, so many centuries are unfolding. 59 Bible chapters cover 11 months. That and all in one location. That is to suggest to you the absolute weight and importance of what we read from Exodus 19 to Numbers 10. 11 months is not long considering all the lengthy time before that. For all kinds of reasons and generations. In verse 2, the instruction is clear. Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel. And the census is to be conducted in the way you could conceive of the nation in different units. By clans and by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head. He wants them to gather together the people for accounting. And the way we can think about it most broadly, think of the most broad grouping as the tribe. And there are 12 of those. And within tribes, there are clans. And within clans, there are fathers' houses. So that's how broad and how narrow it can get. Tribes, clans, fathers' houses. What are we looking for age-wise? In verse 3, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. That means heading into the promised land to deal with the Canaanites who are entrenched in that territory, those who are 20 years old and upward should be counted as a warrior among the tribes. 20 years and up. Now the names that are given in verses 4 through 16 can feel like what one writer said, an assault on the reader's mind unfamiliar with all sorts of terms and words. Um, when I was reading some things about these names and list of tribes this week, 
I often came to different Bible scholars who would remark on, on, you know, God bless you for trying to pronounce all these things out loud. Now, we're going to give it a go tonight, but it's not for the faint of heart as a reader trying to press through these verses because there is a lot here that is challenging. But in verses 4 through 16, there are assistants that Moses and Aaron are going to have. This is a big task for Moses and Aaron. They're just two people. Oh, go ahead, count the nation. Why don't you go ahead and count all the people? Well, there's so many people, that would be an extraordinary amount of time, and they're going to have some help. In fact, one man from each tribe is going to help. Now, how many tribes of Israel? There are 12 tribes, which means we expect 12 names. In verse 4, there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. Now, here are these names that are there. I'm not going to say anything about these names, but this is the word of God preserved for us. So I'm going to read these names out loud. And as I'm reading, I'd love for you to follow along and in your mind, see if I'm pronouncing it the way you would. And if you know a better way, please tell me afterward, uh, not during. Okay, in verse five, these are the names of the men who shall assist you. From Reuben, that's the tribe, Elazur, the son of Shadur. From Simeon, that's a tribe, Shalmuel, the son of Zerishadai. From Judah, in verse 7, Nashan, the son of Amminadab. From Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eli- Eliab, the son of Helon. In verse 10, from the sons of Joseph. From Ephraim. Here's what's happening here. Joseph is being divided by the two sons he has. Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. More on them in a moment. But from Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Emahud, and from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. From Benjamin, in verse 11, Abidan, the son of Gideoni. In verse 12, from Dan, Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. From Asher, Pagiel, the son of Akron. In verse 14, from Gad, Asaph, the son of Duel. From Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enon. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. All this means is that Moses and Aaron, you're going to have help. Here are the names of the people. They're chosen by God. So now there's a team of people to help with the census. That's a wiping of the brow moment where you're like, okay, we've got some help. We've got some major assistance. And um, in this case, one name from each of the tribes is selected. There is a tribe missing. The tribe of Levi was not mentioned. You may have noticed that because Levi is one of the sons of Jacob. Now, while Joseph is a son of Jacob, Joseph was divided into two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. The reason for this is because Levi is altogether different in what will happen for them. So let's do a little math in our minds for a moment. If Jacob has 12 sons and Levi's going to be removed, that's going to leave, that's going to leave 11 tribes who are going to have warriors from them. No, 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 there must be 12. So what we're going to do is we're going to see Joseph be represented by his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh will be a tribe. Ephraim will be a tribe. Ah, once again, the number 12 is filled out. So Levi will have its own thing, and Joseph is divided for those reasons. Now, here's their preparation. In verses 17 to 19, Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named. And on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, head by head, as the Lord commanded Moses. I cannot imagine the logistical difficulties of that summary. 
Just trying to envision the sheer scope of assembling and organizing this massive feat. But they did it in verse 19 as the Lord commanded Moses. All of those names, it's a lot to take in. And then we're just reminded in verse 19, the people obeyed. The people obeyed. So he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. We're reminded where they're taking place. Where all this is taking place is in the Sinai wilderness. Moses and Aaron with their assistants are engaged in it. But the census of the warriors in Israel begins in verses 20 and following. In verse 20, the people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations by their clans, by their father's houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war. Those listed to the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Now that information, here's the way my mind thinks about it. Imagine a form, okay, a little template. And you can, you can look at the names, you know, Reuben. And you can look at the number 46,500. And you can take those answers and you can remove them and just put blanks there. And leave all the other information the same. And it's like you can say, here's the template or here's the form, fill in the blanks accordingly, and there is an expectation of language as we read about these tribes. For instance, verse 22, of the people of Simeon, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, those of them who were listed, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Well, there's a lot of patterned language right there, right? Language about clans and heads and generations listed. In verse 24 of the people of Gad, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of the names from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war. Those listed the tribe of Gad were 45,650. And so pausing there, we've seen now, all right, now we notice what's going on. There is an expectation of how this tribe is featured And the summary of the people. But each of those numbers given for Reuben and for Simeon and for Gad, three of the tribes, the total number is extraordinary. It's nearing, in each of the case, 50,000 shortly under or above. 46 is a little below. Those from Simeon in verse 23 are 59,000. Think of that 50,000 as a round number. And in each of these cases, it's a little below that. Or a little above that. But 50,000 is a pretty strong number to deal with. And in verse 26, of the people of Judah. Ah, the royal tribe. The tribe from which the Messiah will come. By their generations, their clans, by their fathers' houses. According to the number of their names. From 20 years old and upward. Every man able to go to war. Those listed to the tribe of Judah were 74,600. Now that's not just a little above 50. That's a lot more. In verse 28, of the people of Issachar, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed to the tribe of Issachar were 54,400. Zebulun is given in verse 30, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed to the tribe of Zebulun were 57,400. Now, I want you to notice something about verse 32 again. Joseph is going to be mentioned. What did we remind ourselves about Joseph? His two sons will be two tribes because Levi in the original 12 will be doing its own thing. More on that. 
In verse 32, of the people of Joseph, namely of the people of Ephraim, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Ephraim were 40,500. In verse 34, the second son of Joseph is mentioned, Manasseh. Their generations by their clans, their fathers' houses, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed at the tribe of Manasseh were 32,200. Now, at this point even, you're being assaulted with repetitious language. And Numbers 1 does not apologize. It doesn't give you any fair warning. It doesn't say, by the way, just so you know what you're getting yourself into, I hope you can make it past chapter 1. This is the opening chapter of Numbers where we are confronted with this. Why is this information important to the readers? Because God is preparing a generation to enter the promised land and be given an inheritance a land and allotments by God's own power promised and achieved, and yet the people counted here will not be those entering. So all of these counts and all of these tribes that are named, they have people 20 years old and upward who will be part of a rebellion against God. You know who's being numbered here? The rebellious wilderness generation. You don't know it in Numbers 1. But by the time you get to Numbers 13, they've said multiple times, we want to go back to Egypt. These people, those 20 years old and upward, who were counted in the first chapter, who were assembled and organized. And and this, this had to be quite a logistical undertaking. And then these people will say, we want a new leader, not Moses. We want to go back to Egypt where we had it better. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. Oh, we're seeing here, friends, the numbering of people who will rebel against God later in this very book. It's very disheartening. We're told uh, that the tribe of Benjamin, in verse 36, by their generations and clans, their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Benjamin, 35,400. And then Dan, in verse 38, by their generations and clans, their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Dan, 62,700. Of the people of Asher. Asher, in verse 40, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Asher, 41,500. And here's the last one. This is the 12th tribe. Verse 42. Of the people of Naphtali, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. Now I tell you what's nice about this to me. Um, They they added it all together for us in Numbers 1. All right, so I don't have to pull the calculator out on my smartphone. I can see in, in verses 44 through 46 a summary of when you look at this in the totality, the scope is grand. These are those who were listed. Whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel. I think that means those 12 men it says here, right? Each representing his father's house. In verse 45, so all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. 
And if you added up all of those numbers, you would get 603,550. This is an extraordinary amount. It raises the horror of the rebellion of this generation later in the book of Numbers. Now, if that takes us through verse 46, what about Levi? And why is it relegated to the very end? What we need to remember about the tribe of Levi is that they were the tribe set apart from which the priests of Israel would come. They're not going to be mixed up upon the battlefield or with the other enemies of God. They have specific tabernacle tasks. For instance, in verse 47, But the Levites were not listed with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list. And you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But, in verse 50, appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony. Again, the testimony is a reference to the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. In that smallest of the rooms, and the most sacred of the rooms, the most holy place. And over also its furnishings, over all that belongs to it. Okay, what's going on with the tabernacle furnishings? What's it referred to? Well, I didn't draw all of this up there, but in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. In the holy place, on the top, in the northern part, you have a table of bread. In the southern part, a lampstand of gold. And right up to the veil, right outside the most holy place, a golden altar of incense. Very precious vessels and furnishings. And if you weren't from Levi's tribe, you didn't touch it. It was not for you. It was for their tribe and for particular clans within their tribe. The Lord was very specific. It was not like, well, you know, if you will just take some volunteers about who will handle the furnishings. No. No, very specific things were laid out. And right outside the tabernacle, in the courtyard, there was a water basin made of bronze. And right at the edge of the first eastern entrance, a bronze altar of sacrifice where the animals were killed and the blood was spattered and the offerings were burned. These furnishings had to be taken. So as you traveled, without the benefit of massive U-Haul trucks and everything else, you as a tribe of Levi had specific instructions later in Numbers about who was to do what and with what. And it tells us in verse 52, um, I'm sorry, at the end of verse uh, 51, No, the end of verse 50. There I go, I lost my spot. The end of verse 50. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is set up, in verse 51, the Levites, uh, when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. When the tabernacle is to be pitched or put up, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. You just let that hang over your mind for a moment. He should be put to death. What outsider, and not just an outsider who was not an Israelite, but even among the tribes who would seek to penetrate the sacred confines of this building belonging to the work of priests from Levi's tribe. Let's imagine something for a moment. I didn't draw this up here either, but around the tabernacle, the courtyard, there would be three tribes on each side. 
Three on the west, three on the north, three on the east, three on the south side, all around the courtyard. But within those, an inner ring right around the courtyard, in the most inner of the encampments, the Levi tribe all around it, guarding it, guarding it. That's the language we have here in verse 52. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp, each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. They shall keep guard. Earlier in the book of Exodus in chapter 32, the Levites were used of God to exact judgment on idolaters. We know that the Levites have a guardian function with the tabernacle, and I think it does imply what it sounds like it implies. If people were to try to penetrate the ring of the Levites and camped around it to violate or desecrate the tabernacle, those violators were to be put to death. It's as if we're to envision the tabernacle as an Edenic place where like Adam and Eve were to enjoy the confines of Eden and the communion with God and the blessings of paradise. And then in crept a tempter, the defilement of sacred space, the corruption of tasks to guard and serve that holy place. All of that, think of it as a pattern now applied to a portable tabernacle. Israel has a priesthood, the Levites. They're like a corporate Adam guarding from the creeping things. Those who would come to desecrate and violate the sacred space of God. In verse 54, what was the people's response to all of this instruction? Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. Now I will grant you, it is no small feat to think through all of the names and listings of Numbers 1. Not every chapter of Numbers is like that, praise the Lord. It's not a a, a chapter by chapter breakdown from chapter 1 to 36 of census information. But Numbers 1 introduces us to a story where names and tribes matter in the plan of God. And of all the detailed instructions, we're told in verse 54, they obeyed them all. An extraordinary organization and logistical endeavor, and it was all accomplished. While the details and tribes and names are certainly numerous, And can cause the reader to feel like, all right, i got to keep going one foot in front of the other. One more name and one more tribe. We make it to the end and we look back in hindsight and we see in verse 54, behold how all the people obeyed. We see in addition to an extraordinary number of names and tasks, an outstanding display of obedience. They're starting out very well. Thus the people did all according to the Lord's commandment. That is not how numbers will end. But it starts well. can often feel that way with our lives from time to time. Coming to know Christ and hearing of His Word and learning to walk with Him and learning about, about the cross and the Gospel and setting out on the road. And then we realize, you know, the Christian life is a life lived in the wilderness. Following the Lord between redemption from captivity and inheritance. The new creation. Here we are in that 
pilgrimage. And there we are, a multitude of people gathered together, struggling to trust, struggling to follow, looking back and thinking, was it better in Egypt before I started following the Lord? Is where I'm going, is this inheritance to come, is it so surpassingly great that I should keep one foot in front of the other and follow the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night? Will the Lord be faithful? Can I trust Him? And you read in the book of Numbers and you see all sorts of questions and all sorts of doubts. Has the Lord abandoned us? Has He brought us out here to die? Given all that we've gone through, how should we trust Him? And how can we know to follow? And who, who's, who's appointed to lead? And the fickleness of the people. And yet there's, so, there's something so very human about it all. And we can look at the book of Numbers and be quite bewildered by the things that they say and the murmurings and the complaints that they do. And then if we would take the word of God as a mirror to our own hearts, we can have a great amount of sympathy for them in their fear and in their worries and in their doubts and uncertainty where the Lord has made promises and covenants and these people are struggling to follow. They don't have it all together and neither do we. And the book of Numbers does not hide does not hide the stains and difficulties of their lives. The Israelites' hope was not in their own obedience. It couldn't have been. If the Israelites' hope of gaining what was before them was that between redemption and inheritance, they would be sinless or that they would be dependent on their own righteousness, then there was no hope for them and certainly none for us. But if the book of Numbers is a story of God's faithfulness, steadfast covenant-keeping love, then the book of Numbers has encouragement to give us even this day. Because we find ourselves with that same image or metaphor for the Christian life. We're between redemption and all things becoming new. We're there in the middle, aren't we? That space which can feel challenging and difficult, full of travail and bewilderment, doubts and confusion, seeking to trust but knowing that each day our need for grace is clear. And this is not the only census in the book, as I mentioned. In Numbers chapter 26, there will be another because the Israel that we meet here is not the Israel that we see later in the book. There have been thousands and thousands of deaths in the judgment of God. And a new Israel, we could say, rising in the midst to go and inherit the promised land under Joshua in the book of Joshua. Censuses are interesting. It was a measure of authority. In other words, if God says, take a census, and God says, take a census in Numbers 1 and 26, that kind of counting demonstrates an authority and claim over those people. He has specific tasks for them, a certain commission for them. Authority is a big deal when we open the New Testament. You know, there's a census there too. We're finishing the book of Luke, but I just want to remind you about things happening at the beginning of the book of Luke. Caesar Augustus was a, a very powerful emperor in the day, and he said, well, I'll take a census. Let's do some counting. Let's do some counting. And, the, and of, of the, the people in the land, those in his empire, they were to go to the place of their original home and they were to register. And this is why Joseph and Mary, they will go to Bethlehem because of Joseph's lineage, his ancestry. He's connected to the tribe of Judah. He's from the line of David. 
And from the town of Bethlehem in particular. Oh, a census in the Old Testament is interesting in numbers. And I think it's all preparing and anticipating a claim of God over the world. Not just that we see in the Old Testament, but how he wields the worldly powers who would have prided themselves in some kind of claim or ownership. Caesar is in control, but ultimately it is God bringing to pass the birth of his Messiah in Bethlehem because of a census. A registration. The counting doesn't end there. We see in the book of, uh, well, not just the book of uh, Luke, but also in Matthew, Mark, and John, miracles of Jesus where numbers matter. One of the ones that stand out to me is the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Two censuses. Uh, Two counts, if you will, of here are these people in need and need to be fed. And here's this other group later on. And in both cases, they're in this wilderness, desolate place. And there's some leftovers in each case. When the 5,000 are fed, there are 12 baskets left over. That's to remind us of 12 tribes. In fact, in Numbers 1, we have quite an extraordinary number. Numbers 26 is a little bit less than that. These miracles in the desolate place of the Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000 is an impressive number. And the second one that's counted is a little bit less than that. We're reminded that These things are recorded in the Old Testament because the Lord knows and sees, even if names and numbers don't seem as powerfully applicable to our lives. We think, you know, these people from the tribe of Reuben and this chieftain who is helping Aaron and Moses. You know, what do I do with that name? I don't think it's necessarily about that individual name, but the larger scheme and story that's being worked out. We are a wilderness people, and just like the billions who have come before us, Seeking the Lord, knowing the Lord, hearing his word. We are a wilderness people and we are not interested in our names in all of their capacities being the grand part of the story. All of these tribes and all of these names contributed in the plan of God to the greatness of his own plan to bring about the Messiah. We are a wilderness people journeying toward our inheritance and the multitudes will only increase. Encouragement from the book of Revelation comes to mind. It tells us in Revelation chapter 7 that John saw people who were sealed. And now I know that Revelation is full of controversial numbers and uh, symbols. How do we make heads or tails of them? I want to suggest to you that this 144,000 that are referenced in Revelation 7 as sealed and who are the people of God, that these represent something of a an innumerable multitude, a symbolic number. According to Revelation 7, these are those who belong to God and the tribes are listed. It's interesting when you read in Revelation 7, 5 through 8. Judah's mentioned and Reuben, Gad, and Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh and Simeon and Levi appears and Issachar and Zebulun and Joseph and Benjamin. All of these numbers and all of these tribes. Why does the counting matter? Because... This census, or this final accounting of the people of God, it feels very different from Numbers 1 and Numbers 26. John tells us what he sees after he's just told us what he's heard. And I think verse 9 of Revelation 7 helps us realize the numbers and the tribes were symbolic of a greater truth. After this I looked, John says, and behold, a great multitude... That no one could number. From every nation, 
from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You see, the, this innumerable multitude, this fulfills the trajectory of Genesis where God said to Abraham, Look into the sky. Your descendants are like the stars. Count them if you could. Now, there's some actual counting that can be done in Numbers 1 and in Numbers 26. But before God is done with this story in this thing we call the Bible, the people of God are described as an innumerable number. A multitude no one could count. Good luck, Moses, Aaron, and 12 assistants. Not when it comes to the innumerable multitude of the people of God and not those some of whom followed the Lord and some of whom didn't. Numbers 1 and Numbers 26, it's part of a story in which in the old covenant there were those who knew God and there were those who didn't. Oh, the people of God. At the end of all things, when all the dust settles, when death is defeated and when the enemies of God are vanquished and the people of God are vindicated, there is a multitude no one could number. The book of Numbers is preparing for that. The book of Numbers is anticipating a victory. Oh, but here's where it's different. Here's where it's different. In Numbers 1, all of this was to prepare for a victory through these people in the book of Joshua when they would receive their inheritance. Friends, we do not look at a future where the church of God goes to war to achieve the promise. No, the new creation is not something acquired and inherited by our zeal and warfare. Or because we had people 20 years old and upward who we could gather together to war for us. No, it is Christ. This warfare and this entrance into the promised land is all preparing for what would be the victory of Jesus on the cross and from the tomb. That in his death and resurrection, we would receive a victory through faith, not achieve it by our striving. The book of Numbers points to a people of God who are the church of Jesus Christ. Not from 12 tribes descendant biologically from Abraham, but from every tribe, every language, every nation, every people. The church triumphant is triumphant not because our numbers were great enough, but because our Savior is great enough. It's Jesus. It's His triumph. And it's his victory. We are the church triumphant heading into an inheritance purchased by the living Christ who overcomes the wicked and death and Satan and all our sin. When we look at their anticipation of victory, it pales in comparison to what Jesus would achieve as the storyline of Scripture continues. This prepares us for the hope that our victory will be Christ's victory. And because we are His, His victory is ours in Him. Friends, when we look at Numbers 1, we're introduced to a story of a wilderness people who have much to learn and have much to struggle with and whose need at the bottom of it all is to trust the Lord who has delivered them.
There's nothing new under the sun. That's true for April 24th, 2022. Trusting the Lord who has delivered us. Redeeming us for an inheritance of victory. Ours because it is Christ's whom we receive by faith. Let's pray.